Section 7 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 3, Part 1. Mary Beatrice, having taken a sorrowful leave of her only child, set out with her persecuted lord for Scotland, October 27, 1679, having been scarcely permitted to remain a fortnight in London. Brief as that time was, however, greater manifestations of a change in popular opinion towards James had been shown than was at all agreeable to the exclusionists. Their royal highnesses were attended at their departure by a cavalcade of coaches and a great concourse of people who brought them several miles on their journey with every manifestation of sympathy and respect. The sorrowful duke and duchess required a cordial like this to cheer them under their trials at the commencement of their long weary pilgrimage through roads always bad, but now, in consequence of a long continuance of heavy rains, almost impassable. The Princess Anne accompanied them as far as Hatfield, where they intended to sup and sleep the first night. Cold was the welcome that awaited the royal travellers there. James had signified his intention of honouring the Earl of Salisbury with a visit at Hatfield House, not imagining that the Earl, though politically opposed to his cause, could be guilty of a paltry manifestation of personal ill-will to him on such an occasion. The event proved how greatly James had miscalculated the nature of the man to whom he was willing to owe a courtesy, for when he, with his sick and sorrowful consort and her ladies, arrived, at the close of a cold autumnal day, weary and out of spirits, they found Hatfield House dark and desolate, no other preparations having been made for their reception than the inhospitable ones of removing everything that might have conduced to the comfort of tired guests. The lord of the mansion had withdrawn himself to Quickshot, a place about six miles off, whence he sent his son to excuse his not coming to wait on his royal highness, for that he had been let blood five days before. The only provisions for the entertainment of the duke and duchess that appeared were two doughs on the hall table, one barrel of small beer in the cellar, and a pile of faggots. Comparisons, not more odious than correct, were, of course, freely made between the inhospitable lord of Hatfield and Noble by the hungry followers of the duke, when, like Michael Scott's man, they sought bread and gate nain. Fortunately for the whole party, they were near a town where food was to be obtained, not only for money, but for love, and the humblest tradesman there would have scorned to deny it to the brother of his sovereign. If it had been otherwise, the duchess and her ladies must have gone supperless to bed, and in the dark too, for there were neither candles nor candlesticks left in the palatial halls of Hatfield, so minutely careful had the earl been to remove every means of affording the slightest comfort to his self-invited guests. The duke's servants sent into the town to buy all things necessary, even to candles and candlesticks. The gentlemen of the neighborhood were so charitable as to take the Lord Ossory and many others into their houses, where they were well entertained. Such is the account exultingly given by Algernon Sidney of the churlish treatment experienced by their royal highnesses from one of the peers of his party. The duchess and her ladies made no complaint. James indicated neither anger nor surprise, but probably reminded by conduct, so unlike the munificent hospitality of the ancient nobility of England, 
that his titled host came not of gentle blood retaliated his discourtesy with the lofty contempt it merited by declaring his unwillingness to be burdensome to so poor a lord and directed his comptroller sir john worden to pay for what had been consumed the steward actually took money for the faggots and received eight shillings for the small beer to such depths of littleness did the party who had succeeded in driving the duke of york from his royal home at st james's descend in their feelings of personal animosity that even the incessant rains which rendered the northward progress particularly harassing and gloomy to him and his faithful consort are mentioned with spiteful exultation by algernon sidney in his letters to his friend seville the state of the roads was indeed such as to compel their royal highnesses to travel at the funereal pace of only ten miles a day in some parts of the country they were however received well in all the towns through which they passed except york they did not reach that city till the sixth of november james who had resided there for nearly two months with his first duchess anne hyde in the year sixteen sixty six expected to be received with the same honors and demonstrations of affection that had been lavished upon him thirteen years ago when he came fresh from his great naval victory over the dutch to hold his ducal court in regal splendor in the loyal town of york the fickle tide of popular favor had strangely ebbed from the royal admiral since then falsehood had done its work successfully in alienating the hearts of the people from him it was asserted that he had won his naval victories by cowardice and though he had saved the city of london by his sagacity and personal exertions during the fire from being wholly consumed he was accused of being the author of the conflagration if any one asked for what purpose he was suspected of having committed so enormous an act of folly it was replied for the advancement of popery although the homes and properties of the roman catholic citizens had been blended in the same ruin with those of their protestant neighbors in short there was nothing too absurd to be asserted and believed at that moment loyalty was no longer the fashion at york and the city was in the hands of a factious mayor and corporation who decided that no public marks of respect should be paid to the duke and duchess the sheriffs indeed did their duty by riding to tadcaster bridge to meet the royal travellers and conducted them to the house of mr george ainslaby in the minster yard where they were to take up their abode for two or three days but otherwise their entry was only like that of a private family james was changed in person as well as in fortune since his former entrance into york in the flower of his age and the pride of manly beauty his countenance was now marked by the ravages of the smallpox and prematurely furrowed by care his flowing ringlets were superseded by one of those disgusting structures called a periwig in fine it was no longer the gay and gallant prince to whom they had paid their flattering homage when he was the darling of the nation and its hope but a melancholy persecuted and calumniated man who had been driven from his brother's court as the preliminary step for worse usage the lord mayor and aldermen instead of giving their royal highnesses a public welcome merely waited on the duke in private at the house of mr ainslaby where james gave them audience in his presence chamber and the deputy recorder addressed a compliment to him on his arrival in the name of the town and corporation but without the slightest allusion to his consort small proof did the republican corporation of york afford of their courtesy to royalty and beauty on this occasion 
for they offered no mark of attention either by deed or word to mary beatrice during her sojourn in the city from which she and her lord derived their title it is possible as her style of beauty was not of that character which suits a vulgar taste that they might consider her vastly inferior to her plump round-faced english predecessor anne hyde the duchess of york to whom they had been accustomed very different from this churlish reception was the welcome that was preparing for the duke and duchess of york in that hospitable land of warm hearts to which they were proceeding the ancient realm of the royal stuarts the first order that was made in the good town of edinburgh anent the coming of their royal highnesses was for the cleaning of the streets doubtless a very necessary operation at that period and they took plenty of time to do it effectually withal since the order is dated as early as october twenty ninth their next care in contemplation of so important an event as the arrival of the heir of the crown his consort and the train of proud english nobles and gentles who were expected to attend them was for reducing the number of beggars who are wont to trouble all persons who are bound there to the great discredit of the place therefore it was earnestly recommended that charles charteris and thomas douglas baileys should take effectual means for ridding the good town of those sturdy nuisances by the dint of indefatigable scourings and other severe measures the magistrates succeeded in clearing the good town of the vagrant part of its population in time to prevent any disparaging remarks being made on the poverty of the nation by the noble southern strangers but it is to be feared that the persecuted beggars had no other resource left than taking to the hills and moors with the insurgent cameronians meantime their royal highnesses passing through newcastle where they also rested arrived at his majesty's town of berwick-upon-tweed on the twentieth of november similar preparations as regard a general purification of the town had been made at the news of their approach as the entries in the town records for cleansing and carrying away the dirt when the duke of york came indicate the duke and duchess spent one night at berwick and the following items in the corporation accounts show the expenses that were incurred for their entertainment by month pay at ye duke of york's coming to town for charges of his treat twenty seven pounds seventeen shillings nine pence mr aldman jackson for bottles and corks to repay some he sent while ye duke of york was here nineteen shillings mr samuel and joseph ellison for banqueting while ye duke of york came hither thirty three pounds two shillings six pence the charges for sack are very moderate there is another entry in which part of the charges for the entertainment previously given to his rival and enemy the duke of monmouth when he passed through berwick a few weeks before are oddly enough mingled with those for the banquet of the duke of york by month pay mr joseph ellison for banqueting and bringing home when his grace the duke of monmouth was here twenty three pounds nineteen shillings this banquet as well as that for the duke of york was probably ordered from newcastle upon tyne as a wealthy family of the name of ellison were then merchants there the smallness of the sums expended denotes the economy of the corporation as well as its poverty for they not only did to their utmost but beyond their means as we find that mr john luck the mayor advanced the money out of his own private purse to assist the town on this occasion 
the next morning november twenty first their royal highnesses departed from the poor but hospitable town of berwick on tweed and were received and welcomed on the borders of scotland with signal marks of affection and respect three miles from berwick they were met by the scotch guards commanded by the marquess of montrose and at a small distance further by the lord chancellor thirty-eight lords of the king's council accompanied by more than sixty noblemen and the principal gentry of the southern shires making a cavalcade of two thousand horse the lords of the council and the nobles were on foot drawn up to receive their royal highnesses when the duke of york approached near enough he was pleased to alight from his coach and advanced to meet them then the lord chancellor and his noble company made their compliments to his royal highness and welcomed him into scotland which he returned with princely courtesy standing uncovered until they had all kissed his hand the greater number of them paid the like respect to the duchess as she sat in her coach the said company attended their royal highnesses on their journey as far as the duke of lauderdale's house at lathington where they and their retinue and many of the nobility and gentry were splendidly entertained the duke and duchess remained at lathington till they made their public entry into edinburgh on the fourth of december which was so splendid says a contemporary who was probably a witness of the pageant that a greater triumph that city did never see nor were the meanest of the scotch nation wanting in expressing the joy they conceived on this occasion from an item in the accounts of magnus prince the town treasurer for that year we find the sum of fifty-six pounds scots was expended by the good town of edinburgh for a hogshead of wine to be drunk at the cross at the duke of york's arrival and for bonfires that night thirty-four pounds scots in spite of all the calumnies that had been circulating against the duke of york and the prejudicial reports of his bigotry and the bigotry of his italian consort universal satisfaction was manifested by all ranks of people at the sight of both and the idea of their having come to reside among them scotland having suffered for upwards of seventy years from the evils of absenteeism naturally looked with hope to the increase of national prosperity which the establishment of a vice-regal court was likely to cause james came however in a strictly private capacity on this his first visit to the land of his fathers and he wisely resolved to avoid exciting the jealousy of his watchful foes in his brother's privy council by any assumption of state beyond that to which his birth entitled him his first letter from edinburgh is addressed to his son-in-law the prince of orange to whom he says in his usual laconic style i arrived here on monday and was received here as well as on the borders of the kingdom as well as i could expect and truly i have great reason to be satisfied with my reception in this country mary beatrice was attended by the countess of peterborough the countess of roscommon and several other ladies of the highest rank who had been in her service ever since her marriage what idea she and her ladies had formed of scotland may be supposed when even the duchess of monmouth who was the territorial lady of so many fair dominions in that realm when she was preparing to visit her own country wrote to a gentleman that she had been told that the ladies sent to england for their clothes and there were no silk stuffs fit to be worn in scotland pray continues she ask your lady if this be true for if it is we will furnish ourselves here but if it is not we will buy as many as we want when we come there 
and be dressed like other good ladies, and break none of your acts of parliament. Unfortunately, the season of the year was not calculated to impress one, who had been born in the sunny land of Italy, and accustomed to the genial temperature of that voluptuous clime, with a favorable idea of the northern metropolis of Great Britain, surpassing all others, as it does, in the beauty and grandeur of its situation, and abounding in historical antiquities. There was a lack of the domestic luxuries to which the Duchess had been accustomed in her royal home of St. James's Palace. She found Holyrood Abbey not only destitute of furniture, but in a state of ruinous dilapidation, not having undergone any effectual repairs, since Cromwell had used that ancient abode of the monarchs of Scotland as a barrack for his troops, who had plundered and destroyed all its furniture and decorations. The only apartments that were habitable were in the occupation of the Duke of Hamilton, and though some arrangements had been made for her reception, and that of His Royal Highness, they were exposed to much inconvenience and discomfort. Mary Beatrice took these things patiently, for the sake of him, by whose side she cheerfully encountered every trial and hardship. But however perfect her conduct was as a wife, she was not without her faults as a woman, and of these, her natural inclination to fancy herself too far above her fellow-creatures was the most injurious, and, had it not subjected her to a salutary check, might have alienated the affection with which the old Scotch cavaliers were prepared to regard her. One day, James invited the famous general, Dalziel, to dine privately with him. The character of this devoted adherent of Charles I is familiar to our readers from the brilliant sketch drawn by Sir Walter Scott in Old Mortality. The Duchess of York, seeing three covers laid at table, asked her husband, who was to dine with them, and when informed, she greatly objected to dine with a private gentleman. Dalziel entered at the moment, and heard the subject of the dispute before the Duchess was aware of the presence of her guest, and with a spirit still haughtier than her own, thus addressed her. Madam, I have dined at a table where your father stood behind my back. He alluded to the time when, as a general in the imperial service, he had dined in state with the emperor, for whom the Duke de Modena, as one of the vassals of the empire, performed personal service. Instead of testifying any resentment at this well-merited reproof, Mary Beatrice turned playfully to her husband and said, Never offend the pride of proud men. It was not James's custom so to do. His conduct in Scotland was such as to conciliate all ranks of men, and as far as it was possible, all parties. In one of his letters from Edinburgh, dated December 14th, he says, I live here as cautiously as I can, and am very careful to give offense to none, and to have no partialities, and to preach to them, laying aside all private animosities, and serving the king his own way. None shall have reason to complain of me, and though some of either party here might have hoped I should have showed my partiality for them, and some of my friends have been of opinion, it had been best for me to have done so, and by it to have secured one side to me, yet I am convinced it was not fit for me to do it, it being no way good for his majesty's service, which I can make out by many reasons, which would be too long for a letter." The loyal corporation of Edinburgh, being anxious at once to do honor to the illustrious visitants, and to exercise the prevailing virtue of the nation, hospitality, 
convened in a special conclave on the nineteenth of december the object of which appears in the following entry in the minute book of the town council the said day the council did unanimously accord that his royal highness and his duchess be complimented with a handsome treat and therefore grants were sent to the town treasurer to provide the said treat according as the magistrates shall direct the twenty-ninth of the same month was the day appointed for this banquet some junketing with the duke's cooks and treating them and other of the officials in the culinary department of his royal highness's establishment at holyrood palace took place previously it appears probably for the purpose of obtaining a few hints from them tending to enlighten the scottish operatives as to the modes of cookery and sauces in vogue at st james's and whitehall charges there are in the corporation accounts for wine and canal or cinnamon water drunk with those worthies in the back shop of robert mean munchkins of canal water wafers and wine and rough almonds and there is to ain coach with the duke's cooks two pounds and spirits with them in patrick steele's one pound twelve shillings for all which the corporation pays without grudge or grumble also for twelve pounds of confections which sir john worden his highness's comptroller condescends to be treated with at mrs cadell's and four pints of wine and ain coach for which thirty four pounds sixteen shillings is dispersed by the corporation a startling sum to southern eyes were it not for the remembrance that the pounds were only pounds scots which the gentle reader will be pleased to reckon at the rate of twenty pence instead of twenty shillings a few items in the bill of maister r pollock pastryman baxter and burgess of edinburgh for articles furnished by him for aintree to his heinous the duke of albany affords satisfactory proof that the science of good eating was pretty well understood in the good town in the seventeenth century no lack was there for dainties although the barbaric grandeur of gilded salmon pasties and dishes garnished with gold fringed savoured rather of oriental than northern taste and may astonish the refined gastronomes of the present day there was a large turkey pie all over gilded ruby with bone veil and bone turkey furnished for which twelve pounds scots are charged just one pound sterling a very reasonable charge for such a dish emblazoned as it certainly was with the royal arms of scotland and all correctly done by a professional withal witness the item in another bill of twenty pounds paid to george porteous the herald for gold gilding and painting then there is a large ham pie with a batten of gold sixteen pounds a large salmon pie gilded and a potazole pie of what this dainty was composed we confess our ignorance but it was decorated with a gold fringe a lamb's pie a la mode we should suspect the duke's cooks had a finger in this dish and perhaps in the next which from its italian name was doubtless provided for her highness's especial eating namely a florentine with a gilded cover for which the charge is twelve pounds scots a shrimp pie with vermilion colour also figures at this feast a venison pasty of our own venison that is to say venison furnished by the good town but first it should seem presented to them by his royal highness by the token that in another bill twenty-six pounds scots is allowed for the drinking money to those who brought three venisons 
three large venison pasties are charged by richard pollock in this bill by which we understand the paste and other ingredients sixteen pounds and twelve pounds scots there are also three trotter pies gilt a dish that appears to have found favour in the sight of the royal guests for they had trotter pies at their coronation banquet in westminster hall then there were diet pies furnished with all sorts of confections and a la mode tierts and dishes of large minced pies and pantarits no less than thirty dozen of french bread for the table and other things amounting to four hundred and forty pounds thirteen shillings after which appears the supplicatory appeal remember the drink money this is only a specimen of the pastryman's labors for the good town's treat some idea of the meats furnished forth on this occasion may be gathered from mrs cadell's bill whereof the first article is cockle like meaning no other than the favorite dish of bonnie king jamie immortalized by sir walter scott in fortunes of nigel under the scarcely more intelligible orthography of cockyoliki a compound of which a full-grown fowl forms the basis the next item is plum potag porridge we presume then a first course dish it should seem no lack was there however of the substantial fare roast beef and roast mutton geese ducks hens rabbits tongue and lard and other good things as for the dessert there were oranges in plenty and even orange trees pippins rennets almonds raisins dates and musk plums barberries olives no less than sixty pounds of confits and five hundred and sixty-seven pounds of confections the tables were decorated with large gilded crowns the castle the king's arms and the arms of the good town in short it was a feast to convince the southern strangers that there were other things to be got in edinburgh besides sheep's heads the spices fruit confections and condiments of all sorts for this feast are furnished by a merchant of the name of mean who appears to have dealt in everything from ambergris and conchineal to glass and pewter a list of breakage which is included in his bill is rather awful on this occasion thirty-nine glass trenchers at one fell swoop twelve jelly glasses and sixteen stocked glass plates and eight fine crystal glasses a great deal of glass appears to have been used at this banquet twelve pounds is charged for the loan of dr irving's two silver salts and five pounds six shillings eight pence scots for two knives of my lord provost mounted and twisted with silver which were lost one of the most remarkable items in the bill for confections as it is endorsed of that man of many callings merchant mean is thirteen and four pence for writing three copies of an account of the treat which were sent to london and it is to be hoped they were printed both for the honour of the hospitable town of edinburgh and to prove that the persecuted heir to the crown was not at discount in the realm of his royal ancestors if the said documents could be found they would probably supply a most quaint and racy narrative of the proceedings of james and his fair duchess at the civic feast the largest they gave and the gracious acknowledgments they were pleased to make for the many gratifying proofs of regard they had already received in odd reeky the minute books of the town chamber bear record that on the twenty sixth of december sixteen seventy nine they had duly admitted his royal highness the duke of albany and york as a burgess and guild brother of the good town with a great many of his servants among these are colonel john churchill 
master of the robes to his royal highness afterwards the great duke of marlborough and colonel worden comptroller of his household of those in the household of the duchess are lord rosecommon her master of the horse Hieronimo nofo esq her secretary charles leyburn her carver thomas vaughan her cup-bearer two nevilles her pages of honour cornelius donovan page of the back stairs nicholas lapointe yeoman of the mouth of her royal highness and claude formount her master cook all the duke's cooks were also complimented with the freedom of the city so also was the yeoman of his wine cellar the yeoman of the bear cellar as it is called several of their coachmen and footmen and a functionary called the silver scourer a deputation of the corporation waited on his royal highness and presented the freedom with great solemnity in a massive gold box the presence of the heir of the crown and the prudent and conciliating conduct of himself and his consort had a most beneficial effect in scotland and did more towards calming the effervescence of the conflicting parties there than if an army had been sent over the border by king charles the duke of york came however strictly in a private capacity and in reality as a banished man his right to a seat in the privy council was at first contested not only by the adverse faction but even by the marquess of montrose the lord president james with an equal mixture of firmness and mildness asserted his rights and carried his point that he bore no resentment against montrose is apparent from the circumstance that he afterwards preserved his life at the imminent peril of his own by pulling him with his own hand into the little boat in which he was leaving the foundering ship at the time of the disastrous loss of the gloucester a noble action on the part of james which no one but the faithful peeps who witnessed it has had the honesty to record the king had promised the duke and duchess of york that they should return to england early in the new year and he was as good as his word moderate men and well-wishers to their country those for instance who had nothing to gain by a system of anarchy and confusion had been long disgusted with the proceedings of the party in power and alarmed at the wild changes they were driving at the cavaliers the gentlemen of england the churchmen and the merchants came forward with loyal addresses to the crown and expressed their affection to the sovereign and their abhorrence to the practices of the factious demagogues by whom he was enthralled the gentlemen of norfolk even ventured to offer thanks to the king for the recall of the heir of the crown from flanders thus encouraged the king roused himself from the mental paralysis in which he had suffered himself to remain for the last eighteen months and entering his council chamber he informed the astonished conclave there that he had derived little benefit from the absence of his brother that as the rights of that prince had been assailed and probably would again at the meeting of parliament he thought it only agreeable to reason and justice that he should be present at the approaching session in order to make his own defence he had therefore commanded his royal highness to quit edinburgh and return to his former residence at st james's palace this declaration which was made january twenty eighth sixteen eighty was followed by the proffered resignation of shaftesbury russell cavendish capel and powell james replied that he accepted it with all his heart greatly rejoiced as the duke and duchess of york were with this auspicious change of affairs the affectionate and respectful manner in which they had been treated by the scotch caused them to leave the friendly northern metropolis with regret 
which james expressed with manly eloquence in his farewell speech to the lords of the council he also told them that he would acquaint his majesty that he had in scotland a brave and loyal nobility and gentry a wise privy council and a learned and upright judicature the lords of the council responded with the warmest protestations of affection and respect and wrote a dutiful letter to the king thanking him for the honour he had done them in sending the duke to visit scotland and expressing the highest commendations of the wise and prudent conduct of that prince though the season of the year was improper for a sea voyage yet the duchess who to use james's own words was now inured to hardships as well as himself counted that for nothing so anxious was she to embrace her only child again from whom she had now been separated for four long months that rather than submit to the delay of an overland journey she determined to return by sea if you were a seaman wrote james to his brother-in-law i could soon make you understand that it is better going from scotland to london by sea in winter than back thither at this time of the year there will be a light moon at the time i name and both the duchess and i have a great mind to go back by sea having been extremely tired by our land journey to edinburgh mary beatrice cheerfully embarked with her beloved consort in the yacht commanded by captain gunman which the king had kindly sent for their transit and arrived at deptford february twenty fourth there they left the yacht and went up the river to whitehall in a barge they were saluted by the guns from the ships and from the tower and at their landing at the privy stairs they were received by king charles in the most affectionate manner his majesty led the duchess to the queen's apartment and from thence to her own whither many of the nobility and persons of quality immediately repaired to compliment their royal highnesses on their safe return and to kiss their hands that night the city was illuminated and blazed with bonfires two days after the lord mayor aldermen and common council came to pay their respects to the duke and duchess the recorder delivered a congratulatory address to the duke on his safe arrival and expressed the prayers of the city for his health and prosperity the civic powers having kissed his royal highness's hand were conducted into the apartment of the duchess to whom the recorder also made a complimentary speech assuring her of the affection of the city of london and their joy at her return they then kissed her hand and withdrew highly satisfied with their reception the next day sir robert clayton the lord mayor feasted the royal brothers with a magnificent supper the lady mayoress sat next the king all over scarlet and ermine and half over diamonds the aldermen drank the king's health over and over on their knees and in their uproarious state of loyal excitement wished every one hanged and consigned to a state of perdition that would not serve him with their lives and fortunes they would not trust the royal brothers with no better escort than his majesty's guards who were all visibly the worse for their powerful potations but insisted on escorting them back to whitehall themselves at two o'clock in the morning where they reduced themselves to at least as improper a state as the guards by a carouse in the king's cellar the next day they all came in a body to return thanks to the king and the duke for the honour they had done them the duke of york accompanied the king to the spring races at newmarket but mary beatrice remained at st james's with the princess anne and her own little isabella the duke made a journey from newmarket to london on purpose to visit her 
and returned the next day which considering there were no such locomotive facilities for travelling as in these times may be regarded as almost a lover-like mark of attention the virtues and conjugal devotion of this princess were gradually winning a greater empire over the heart of james than had been gained by her beauty in its early bloom when she came to england as his bride it was not till she had been his wife six years that james appears to have been fully sensible of the value of the prize he had drawn in the matrimonial lottery and that she was possessed of qualifications more worthy of admiration than those external graces which had been celebrated by the most distinguished poets of the age End of section seven.